This evening, we are beginning to look at the book of Judges. And for those who have spent any time at all in the book of Judges, you will know, no doubt, that it is both shocking and absorbing in its material. As the Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis once observed, the church in general has a problem with the book of Judges. It is so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent. In a word, so strange that the church can scarcely stomach it. As with many Old Testament materials, the sentiment seems to be, if we just stay in the epistles long enough, maybe it will go away. Yet, that is difficult to do with judges. It's so interesting. And indeed, it is interesting. Its pages contain crime and judgment, sin and grace, total depravity, and the judgment of God and the faithfulness of God. So let's begin. Let's look at the text. Tonight we'll be in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll be reading down through chapter 2, verse 5. And so, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. A writer writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, and in the Negev, and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites, who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they struck Sheshai, and Ahiman and Talmai. Then from there they went up against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give even him my daughter Aksa for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. Then it came about, when she, that she came to him, and she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law went up from the city of the Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. 
So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territories from and Ashkelon with its territory and Ikron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Moses, as, uh, to Caleb as Moses had promised and drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Likewise, in the, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and said to him, Please show us the entrance in the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not possess Bethsheen and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Athlab or Axim or of Helba or Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and the inhabitants of Beth Anah became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, but they did not allow them to come down into the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Herez and Ajalon and Shalbim, but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Now this passage opens up by setting the stage for us. The events of this book, at least by and large, took place after the death of Joshua. Now I make that caveat because as we'll see, it seems that some of the events that are recorded here in chapter 1 are explicitly also recorded in the book of Joshua and seem 
to perhaps have taken place during the life of Joshua. But by and large, these events here took place after his death. And things started off well enough. Joshua was a great man, led the Israelites on a great conquest, and by the end of his life, Joshua was such a faithful man, he could say, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, of course, the Israelites said at that point that they were going to serve the Lord. And things start off here in the book of Judges well enough. In verse 1, we read of how they asked the Lord who should go up first against the Canaanites and, and uh, to fight against them. And what seems to be going on here is that it seems like in, in Joshua's day, he had led them in and they had had the big-scale battles. But now, in this early period of the Judges, you have this, uh, this season where they're to go in and actually take possession of the land. There's some mop-up activity that needs to take place in respect to the fighting. And so you have this, this major conquest taking place in the first half of the book of Joshua, and this is different from them actually going in and taking possession of the land. And so the cleanup operations then were going to take place little by little, and this was in accordance with what the Lord had said to them in Deuteronomy 7.22. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. And so this was, this was the Lord's plan, was that, that little by little he would drive out the nations before them. And so now, after the death of Joshua, they're still doing this work of going in to possess the land, little by little. The Lord's answer to this inquiry of the men of Israel in verse 1 was that Judah was to lead the way. So the tribe of Judah is to go up and to fight against the Canaanites. And Judah then recruited his brother Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, to join in the fray with the reciprocal pledge that, hey, you go up with us, we'll also go up with you when, it times come, when the time comes for you to possess your territory. And the Lord was gracious to them. He gave them the victory. It was explicitly stated there in verse 5 and following. They caught up with this man, Adoni Bezek, who is apparently a local lord, a local king. His, uh, the first part of his name, Adonai, means, means lord. So he's apparently the lord of this place, Bezek. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes and render him incapable of military service. And notice there that even this pagan king, Adoni Bezek, testifies of the justice of the conquest, and the justice particularly of these amputations that he has received. He said that he had done the same to others, and he was repaid in kind. Ultimately, it was God who repaid him in this way. And we need to understand that at the broader level, the conquest itself was just. The Canaanites were sinners, and this is why the Lord said that he would drive them out before the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9. He said, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm giving you the land, it's because of their sinfulness that I'm driving them out. And so we find then in verse 8 that the sons of Judah go up to Jerusalem, fight against it, and capture it. They strike the city with the edge of the sword, set it on fire. Now commentators are divided as to whether this may be referring to a conquest that took place during the time of Joshua or whether these events speak of this particular conquest as occurring during this possession of the land that took place after Joshua's death. Now I would personally lean toward thinking that in verse 8, it's taking a step back to the days of Joshua. The King James Version seems to make an interpretive 
uh, rendering in its translation when it renders verse 8 as saying, now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it. I don't think, strictly speaking, the translation requires the use of the past perfect, the had taken it, had fought against it, but I think they're making an interpretive decision, and I think I would agree with that uh, decision in kind of putting these events back earlier, back in the days of Joshua. And then given the temporal marker that we find in verse 9, that afterward the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites in the hill country, in the Negev, and the lowland, and given that uh, that those events seem to be described for us in Joshua 10, verse 40, through 11, verse 23. These seem to have taken place during the life of Joshua, and especially we see those, that threefold uh, designation, the hill country, the Negev, and the lowland, also occurring in Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. And here we also find the, the capture of Hebron formerly known as Debir, and that likewise is related in the book of Joshua, Joshua 15, verses 13 through 19, seemingly still during the lifetime of Joshua. Debir was formerly known as Kiriath Sefer, which is literally the city of books. Some have thought that this was a city where the Canaanites kept their archives. I don't know for sure why they called it the city of books, but evidently it was a learned place. And so we have here Caleb, the other spy who was with Joshua, And now he is receiving the fruit of his faithfulness, entering into the promised land and taking part in its conquest. And to spur on someone to gallant deeds, he promised that he would give the victor in this battle, the man who captures this city, give him a wife, his daughter Aksa, in marriage. And as it turned out, it seems that Othniel must have wanted a wife, and so he went forward to capture the city. This Othniel was a relative of Caleb, seems to have been Caleb's nephew, if we understand the word brother here in the the literal sense of an actual physical brother, and that Othniel is called the son of Caleb's brother Kenaz. And Caleb is also generous to his daughter when she requested water. The land that she had been given was dry in the Negev, the desert. She needed water, and Caleb generously gave her these springs. And then in verse, verse 16, we get this little detail here about the Kenites, the uh, descendants of the Kenites. Moses' father-in-law uh, was a Kenite. And so, so this, is, this is the people who are the, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And they had gone up with the sons of Judah and lived among the people. And so these Kenites are not ethnically Jewish, but they live among the people, and they show up at some interesting points in the Old Testament narrative. And when they do, they generally seem to be godly folks, or at least their opinions and actions all fall on the godly side, more or less. And so in Judges chapter 4, verse 11, we're told about a man named Heber the Kenite. And we might be forgiven for forgetting the name Heber, but we do remember his wife. His wife's name was Jael, the woman who nailed it when Sisera the Canaanite laid down in her tent. She drove a tent peg through his temple and then notified Barak, the leader of the Israelite army, that this man was dead. And this woman, Jael, was the wife of Heber the Kenite. And 1 Chronicles 2.55 shows us that a man named Rechab was descendant of the Kenites. 
And we're told in 2 Kings chapter 10 about a man named Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, who collaborated with Jehu in the northern kingdom when Jehu was trying to kill all the worshipers of Baal. You remember how Jehu was, was playing up that he was a worshiper of Baal only to uh, try to kill all of the worshipers. He said, Ahab worshipped Baal a lot. I'll worship him even more. And, uh, and so they, they tried to gather up all the, uh, the worshipers of Baal and kill them. And this man, Jehonadab, accompanied Jehu into the house of Baal when he set a trap for the worshipers of Baal. And this Jehonadab is probably none other than Jonadab, the son of Rechab, who's referred to in Jeremiah 35, who told his descendants not to drink wine, not to build a house, not to sow seed or plant vineyards. They were supposed to live in tents. Jehonadab and Jonadab are just variations on the same name, kind of like William and Will in English. And so these Kenites live among the people of Israel, and they're an asset to the people of Israel. And an example in that case of Jeremiah, they're an example of godly, faithful living, whereas the people of Judah were not living godly lives. And so these people generally seem to be upright, or at least their sympathies seem to be on the godly side. But... As we move on through chapter 1, we should note that there are some troubling trends here. We saw the Lord helping Judah in verse 4. We saw the repetition from the the history of the book of Joshua, the valiant behavior of Caleb, who is still ready to fight and take the promised land with the same great heart and great faith that he had exhibited when he was a spy years and years before. We see in verse 19 how the Lord was with Judah and they took possession in the hill country. But yet, still in that same verse, verse 19, there's this ominous note that they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the valley because of their chariots. And then things get worse from there. We find in verse 21 that, the, that Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Now at this point, the bells and whistles in our head might be going off, wait a minute, what, we just read about Jerusalem, right? Back, back in verse 8, the, the people of Judah, the men of Judah, conquered Jerusalem and set it on fire. So what's, what's going on here? And likewise, in Joshua 15, 63, we're told that the sons of Judah could not drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. And so what's the deal? Did Jerusalem belong to Judah or to Benjamin? Was it captured and burned, or could they not drive out the Jebusites? Well, to all of the above, I would answer broadly, yes. If you have that uninspired section in the back of your Bible called maps, and if you have one of those maps back there that lists out the, the territories divided uh, as they're divided among the 12 tribes, you'll notice on a map like that that Jerusalem is pretty close to the border between the territories of Judah and Benjamin. Some are of the opinion that parts of Jerusalem may have actually been in the territory of Judah, while others, other parts of it lay in the territory of Benjamin. And though they did capture the city, at least a part of it, and they did burn it, nevertheless, they could not seem to solidify their hold on the city, at least not for this entire period. And so they ended up living together with the Jebusites in a sort of a detente. They, uh, they weren't fighting, the uh, they eased the strained and hostile relations, and they just, they just lived together. We need to remember, in, in thinking about this, that the period described in the book of Judges between the death of Joshua and the days of Samuel covers something like 350 to 450 years, somewhere in that range. 
Towns can be captured and lost. During the Civil War, the town of Winchester, Virginia, changed hands dozens of times. I have seen different figures stretching from like 46 times up to about like 70 times. And I don't know, I don't know what's the right number, but suffice it to say, it was a lot. And that was just in five years. You can, you can imagine how a place like Jerusalem could have, could have changed hands and gone back and forth, and you could have had this season of detente where these people just, just decided to live together, the Jebusites, the people of Judah, the Benjaminites, and, and so on. There's a lot of time in this period for Jerusalem to have been captured and burned, and then for the Jebusites to have re-inhabited uh, the, the city. But the trend that we see beginning in verses 19 and verse 21 only ramps up and becomes worse and worse as you go through the end of the chapter. We see the failure of Manasseh, the failure of Ephraim, the failure of Zebulun. In some cases, we see the Canaanites being subject to forced labor, but that's not what the Lord commanded. He commanded that they be wiped out, that there be no covenant uh, with the people of the land. And as you look down to the tribe of Asher, things are even worse. Notice there that the language is reversed Concerning the earlier tribes, we're told that the Canaanites lived among them. Canaanites lived among the people of Manasseh and Ephraim and Zebulun. When you get down to verse 32, we're told, So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. It is as if the Canaanites are still the dominant ones in the territory of Asher, and the people of Asher are just kind of just showing up and, and living there almost under the predominance of the Canaanites. And you see the same thing spoken of in regard to the tribe of Naphtali in verse 33, that they uh, lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And then the situation with respect to the tribe of Dan is even worse than that. We're told in verse 34, uh, the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, sons of Dan were not even able to live among the Amorites. Now, if you're looking at that map in that uninspired section of your Bible in the back, and if you're looking at the Old Testament tribal allotments, you may notice here that we are told something about every tribe who had territory west of the Jordan except the tribe of Issachar. There's no, no mention of the tribe of, of Issachar here in chapter 1. And with the exception of Simeon, Simeon being the exception, we read explicitly about the failure of every tribe that we encounter here in chapter 1. Now, maybe, maybe Simeon, since they partnered up with Judah, maybe their failure is kind of lumped under Judah's failure. It's hard to be sure. But the point is, about every tribe here, we read of something of them that they failed. They failed to, to drive out the people. That is a rather ominous beginning for a book, wouldn't you say? book of Joshua ends on a, on a great note. Joshua, godly man, what happens after the death of Joshua doesn't look too good. This was a failure on the part of Israel, and we find this explicitly in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where we're told about this angel of the Lord who speaks to them and accuses them of their failure. And given the way in which this angel speaks, notice, notice how he speaks. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and so on. Given that language there, this seems to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And indeed, Christ is spoken of as the angel or messenger of the covenant in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I realize it's possible that this could be a created angel speaking 
in the name of the Lord, perhaps, but others have thought, and I would tend to agree, that this seems to be the, the pre-incarnate Christ speaking here. But in short, these people have failed to obey. They've compromised with the ungodly of the, the inhabitants of the land, and instead of relying on the Lord and trusting Him to deliver the land into their hands, they have settled for, for various forms of going along and getting along. Subject them to forced labor when you can. Sometimes the people were even defeated. They were to have made no covenant with them. They were to have torn down their altars, but now they had disobeyed, and they forfeited the Lord's victory. And their punishment is spelled out in chapter 2, verse 3. They will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And so it turned out. That's what the book of Judges is all about. The world, the ungodly, with whom the Israelites had compromised, the world would prove to be their very instruments of punishment. Commentator Andrew Fawcett put it this way, The resolute determination of the Canaanites was more than a match for the longed will of Manasseh. So it will ever be when professing believers shrink from the good fight of faith and will not endure hardship as good soldiers of Christ. The world will not yield an inch to the man who is not resolute and courageous for God. Nay, it will push him back step by step from the ground which he had gained, for one compromise entails a second and that a third and so on, as Manasseh lost town after town. And I think that this is a very important consideration for us in the times in which we are living. We are living in times where there seems to be some quadrants of the church that are scrambling to try to figure out how to best interact with the world, how we can best posture ourselves before the world, and at the risk of generalizing or putting a construction upon their behavior which they would not agree with, it seems that some of those quadrants are trying to figure out how we can venture halfway into the spirit of the age, meet the world there on their own turf and agree with them so far as we can to win their favor and then hope that they will listen to the gospel that we proclaim. Or if perhaps that is too extreme of a description, and if that description exceeds actually what is taking place, we can at least say that worldliness is infiltrating the evangelical world, and if it is not dealt with, it will prove to be a scourge upon the church. Now, I I realize we touched upon this topic this morning, and while I don't want to be unduly redundant and become tiresome to you, I really do believe there's an amazing relevance here in our text and amazing applicability in this particular passage to the particular problems that the evangelical church, broadly speaking, is facing today. Compromises with worldliness in terms of spirituality, compromising with worldly philosophies in terms of how we seek to tackle problems. Let me give just a couple of examples. The first uh, comes from something uh, that I encountered uh, first some years ago, and, and this, this may have been taken from something in the 70s or 80s, but still relevant today. Um, I read about this, this gathering. I don't know if it was some kind of a deal uh, for the World Council of Churches or what, but that's not a helpful organization, to say the least. But at any rate, there was, there was some gathering of, of church leaders, and someone on the platform was, uh, was trying to, to lead, and, and they said, you know, Something like, imagine that you are a mountain, or something like that. And, and there was, you know, it was trying to, to pursue some kind of false spirituality. And there was a, a Christian there, I don't, I don't remember if he was a pastor or what, I think, I think maybe from India. And he said, 
I left all that behind when I became a Christian. Praise God for someone with such down-to-earth sensibilities and recognizing, hey, this is, this is foolishness. This is not Christianity. I left this behind when I became a Christian. And let me give something that's a more recent example. This is from earlier this month. On March the 5th, a, an 18-year-old college student named Caitlin Richardson wrote a letter to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And Caitlin Richardson had attended a conference uh, that was put on by, by InterVarsity, an ostensibly uh, evangelical uh, college parachurch organization. And the conference was uh, on the issue of, of ethnicity and race. And she said, I really appreciate that InterVarsity is trying to tackle such difficult questions. These are especially relevant issues on campus. As Christians, we need to have the right answers. But we can't get the right answers if we are asking the wrong questions. When it comes to ethnic tensions, the question is not, how can I become more ethnically aware, but how does the gospel unite us in Christ? Unfortunately, the Mosaic Conference addressed the first question, and in doing so, drew more on worldly philosophy than scriptural truth. And she detailed some of the, some of the things that she sat through in this conference, and then she said, All of this breaks my heart. Our universities desperately need Christ. It's hard enough for students to stay afloat afloat when their faith seems under constant fire from professors, peers, and university culture at large. In the place where they feel able to let their guard down and expect to be fed the truth of God, students are slowly led to believe false teaching. Why even have a campus ministry if we are proclaiming a message closer to the universities than to Christ's? The same ideas of becoming aware of power structures, learning to rid yourself of privilege, and working to dismantle systems have been celebrated in my English classes, where I read atheist authors like Max Horkheimer, Michael Foucault, and Karl Marx. The solutions and resources promoted at the Mosaic Conference are close to or the same as those championed by the universities. What the university lacks is perspective on the real issue humanity faces, alienation from God due to sin. Sin does not cease to be the problem when ethnic strife occurs. InterVarsity has made this same mistake, presumably because it has absorbed aspects of secular worldview. And uh, she goes on to say how basically she's She's kind of bidding farewell to, to InterVarsity, and she's asking them to re, uh, re-examine their, their teachings on, on these things. And I point that out because here we have this, this 18-year-old college student, I would assume probably a freshman in college, and yet she is grounded enough in Scripture to recognize the false teachings that are infiltrating this organization and this conference that she attended. And what is this but compromise with the world and the spirit of the age, infiltrating what are ostensibly gospel-oriented organizations, and such infiltrations will prove to be the very punishment of the people who profess them. Now contrast the compromising spirit that we've just heard about, the compromising spirit that we see here in Judges chapter 1, Compromise, uh, compare that with the spirit of Caleb. Caleb uh, is a man who is strong in the faith, and his name 
if you, if you break it apart in the original, means all heart. And indeed, Caleb is all heart. And so just listen to this description of Caleb found in Joshua chapter 14 when he went up into the promised land. The sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old then when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot as trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am as still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war, for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country, which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. This is a man who has no, no compromises, right? He didn't compromise with the ten spies. He didn't compromise in the wilderness. And now when they're entering the promised land, this man is ready to trust the Lord and move forward in faith. And so it must be with us. We need no compromises with the world. The world has nothing to offer us. The truth of the word of God is sufficient for us. And so may God strengthen us in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we ask that we would imitate the faith and zeal of Caleb, that we would trust you with all of our hearts, that we would not compromise with the world, but that we would fully rely on you, on your word, on the sufficiency of your gospel to address the problems uh, that we face. And Lord, we ask that we'd be faithful in holding forth this word of life to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.